Welcome to the Vida podcast, a series of discussions about the next generation media companies from startups to larger corporations. My name is Peter Cowley. I'm the chair of Vida Media. Vida is a specialist startup and content studio focused on these next generation of media companies. Last week, we ran a panel session with three founders of businesses that we'd recently worked with, Liv from Galdem, Danielle from Casquette, Hero from Muddy Stilettos. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm going to hand over to Kevin Sutherland, who facilitated the discussion. So, yeah, as Peter says, I'm Kevin Sutherland. Um, but you don't really want to hear from us. You want to hear from uh, these three people uh, who are actually doing um, uh, and building next generation media brands. Um, at Vida, as Peter says, this is a sector that we focus on. So we're sort of scanning the sector the whole time. Uh, and shortly, we're going to be publishing a list of what we call the next generation media 25, which will be a list of the 25 best and most interesting examples of these kind of businesses um, in the UK at the moment, plus some ones to watch. Um, so if you don't already, please follow Vida so that you can get the list um, uh, next month. Right, so we keep talking about next generation media brands. Um, so what are they? Well, we define them uh, in very simple terms as businesses that are media businesses that are disruptive to the status quo in their approach, their format, their business model, etc. Multi-platform, so not just kind of single channel blogs, uh, podcasts, etc. Income coming from multiple diverse revenue sources, um, and the uh, the last two probably the most important ones. Often serving underserved audiences or meeting unmet needs, and doing it all without the leverage of a big established audience or a uh, a big budget that the um, that the big established mainstream media um, perhaps enjoy. Okay, so just to lead into this, some of you might be familiar with the Japanese concept of ikigai, right? So ikigai is one's reason for being, right? Uh, so if we can start with just a little bit of philosophy. Um, it's illustrated by four overlapping circles in a Venn diagram, which I'm conscious is really great for audio. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, when we realise this, we realise we, we need to put a link in the, in the notes when we distribute this, which we will do, right? But imagine, if you will, four overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. Um, but the point is that a person's perfect ikigai or reason for being occurs when they find the coincidence of those four things. And they are being able to do what you love, being able to do what you're good at, that being something that the world needs, and crucially, it being something you can get paid for. Um, so it sounds like a pretty good place to be, and it's also a pretty good description of many next-generation media brands that are often started by somebody with a passion and a capability or a skill or a track record in developing content or media. So um, enough preamble. We're going to talk to three people that are doing or have done that already. We've got Hero Brown from Muddy Stilettos here. We've got Liv Little from Galdem and Daniel Welton from Casquette. So could I ask you each to briefly introduce yourselves? and maybe give us the sort of 60-second rundown of the business. Liv, do you want to go first? For sure. So I'm Liv. Um, I'm Galdem's founder and CEO. And Galdem's been going for four years now, one year in a kind of formalised business capacity with a full-time team of staff. Before then, it was a kind of 
side hustle that's not really a side hustle because it takes up all of your time. <laughs> um, so we're, we're kind of growing and we're scaling and, and we're testing out different revenue streams and, and, and models. Um, and Galdem really launched as a direct response to a lack of representation. Um, I was kind of at university at the time that Galdem launched and kind of found that the curriculum and that the discourse wasn't representative of myself. Um, and it was kind of a determination to connect with people and to have these conversations beyond the kind of academic canon um, that inspired Galdem that you know today. Cool, thank you. Um, my name is Danielle and I'm the co-founder and creative director of Casquette, which is a women's cycling lifestyle brand. And we exist online, in print, on social and through events. And I set up Casquette in 2016, basically because I was cycling a lot. I was looking to the mainstream cycling media and I couldn't see any images of women cycling. I couldn't see any stories of women cycling and it was almost as if women cyclists didn't exist. Um, so I set up Casquette to kind of tell the stories that I wanted to see in the way that I wanted to see them and really to redress the balance. Cool. Hero. Um, I'm Hero Brown. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at Muddy Stilettos. Um, Muddy Stilettos is the biggest lifestyle site uh, in the UK for women who are outside London who, uh, as we say on Muddy, want to find the fun. And Muddy's been going... Um, for about nine years now, it started as a blog. Um, I'm a journalist, so my background is 20 years of national journalism and national magazines and, and uh, actually deputy editor of Red magazine, funnily enough, um, and Glossies. Um, so it started as a blog and then it sort of grew and now we publish across 24 counties. And uh, we work, we have a national editor in every single county. And so we have real insider information. That's the thing. We, we have fantastic writers, very glossy kind of um, glossy magazine kind of feel and outlook. Um, but we talk very much locally to people. And then when you aggregate us across all of our counties, we become a very potent um, a, a national advertiser. So we've worked with the likes of Jules and Waitrose, Hush. Uh, we're working with Tide Bank at the moment. But everything is, you know, um, extremely important to me that Muddy is uh, absolutely authentic and we don't write anything that we wouldn't go and either go to ourselves or would recommend to our friends when we're slightly drunk after a glass of wine. Brilliant. So it's mainly booze-based. <laughs> I've got three children. I don't know what else you expect. <laughs> yeah. Here, here. As of the 1st of February, anyway. Um, so, uh, thank you all. Um, so I'd like to delve into a few topics in a little bit more uh, detail. Um, so we defined next generation media brands uh, in the way that I sort of just described. So disruptive, multi-platform, diverse revenues, underserved audiences, and doing it all without the heft and budget of, of a big um, media company. So, Liv, does that sound like Galdem? How well does that describe you? It business? does. I was, I was looking through the points and I was thinking, yes, okay, disruptive. <laughs> Galdem is here definitely to shake up a publishing industry that is 94% white and 55% comprised of men. Um, so disruptive, absolutely. Multi-platform, yes, it's important to us that we're speaking to our audience across lots of different types of content, be that podcasting, be that television, video content, editorial events as well, real world um, events are a really important element of, of the work that we do. Diverse revenues, yes, again, <laughs> so 
something that definitely applies to us, be that through consultation, through your kind of um, advertorials, brand campaigns, events, cultural partnerships. We're launching a membership model in the next two weeks as well. Um, underserved audiences, yes, we know that women of colour and non-binary people of colour are, for the most part, ignored in mainstream media. Um, and when they are commissioned to speak, they are often only commissioned to speak on topics that relate to, directly to their gender or to their race, which is incredibly limiting. Um, and yeah, again, growing an audience via community and connections is absolutely something that is fundamental to the growth of Galdon, which has been completely organic. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of the community came to us because, you know, just as we, as the people that were building this business, recognised that there was a gap and, and an audience that we wanted to connect with, they wanted to connect with us too. And I think yeah. because people see us, they know us, they trust that we have their best interests at heart, like that community has grown really naturally and there isn't that same sense of, I don't know, accountability or, or authenticity, I guess, um, that you get with other mm -hmm. um, kind of media outlets. And yeah, it was a great time for yeah. us. Well, look, you've touched on lots of things there that I'd like to sort of unpick as, mm -hmm. as we go through. You know, I'd like to understand more about events. Uh, certainly, I'd like to hear about the plans for um, paid for or membership models mm -hmm. and what have you, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and I'm really interested in what you said about authenticity or sort of the closeness to and the representative nature of your audience. I mean, mm -hmm. Hero, you've touched on authenticity already as well, right? Um, so we're definitely going to be talking about, um, about all of those um, things. Um, is there, I mean, Hero, Danielle, is there anything that's not on our sort of def definition? Is there anything that's not on our list that you think, hang on a minute, you know, that, you know, you've missed something about my business? No, I, I when I saw, the, saw the, these points earlier, um, I actually kind of questioned whether we were disruptive. Because when you think of a disruptor, you're thinking about, you know, uh, Uber. Yeah. Uh, stealing market share from taxis or Airbnb stealing market share from hotels. And I was kind of thinking, well, for Casket, we're not stealing market share from the mainstream men's media. We're not disrupting in that way. What we're doing is we're creating our own platform. We're telling stories in our own way that they're not able to tell. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if that still makes us a disruptor, then I'm game for being called that. But it, it, just, <laughs> it just made me think, are we disrupting? Because we're not stealing. We're creating our own platform and our own way of speaking mm -hmm. and doing and being. You are taking from, if there's a pot of marketing money, you're taking it from where it could go. So in that sense, you are, aren't you? Yeah, although I think that with um, cycling in particular, uh, the men's market's reached a plateau. And so people are starting to tap into the fact that women's is its own market. And actually, if yeah. they start tapping into that, then there's opportunity for revenue. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that uh, women will, they're still looking at the men's, men's media, but what they're doing is they're moving in droves over to my uh, pub publication. So I'm not stealing the men necessarily, I'm just giving the women what they want what, that they can't get in the current publications that are the mainstream men's media. The men's cycling media are speaking to women in the way that they want to be spoken mm -hmm. to. They're not telling the stories in the way that, you know, I'm not motivated by going faster or further or the watts or the FTP. Yeah, yeah. I'm motivated by, I don't know, sometimes I'm running away from things. Sometimes it's a triumph over adversity. Sometimes it's um, just because I want a digital detox. And lots of women who cycle thousands of kilometers unsupported, I want to know why they're not doing it as opposed to how they're doing it. I've gone, gone off-piste, but... <laughs> no, this is, 
<laughs> this is wonderful. I, I, actually, as I'm looking at it, right, and I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think we're in the territory of underserved audiences with unmet, unmet needs here. You know, yes. you're actually, you know, you, you're doing something that needs to be done and hasn't been done very well previously. Yeah, and there's definitely an underserved audience who are passionate about what we're doing, and that's kind of the reason why I'm doing it. Okay. Now, on that point, why are you doing it? Right. I mean, sometimes know. I wonder. No. Yeah, because this isn't e this isn't easy, right? No. You know, this isn't easy. So you know, so why did you decide to you know? I uh, think start? the reasons why I started Casket and the reasons why I do it now are different. So I started it because I was cycling. I was getting really into it. I wanted to find out more about you know uh, kit and stories and journeys and adventure. Mm. And I was looking at the mainstream uh, cycling media. You'd flick through pages. A friend of mine. Looked at Cyclist magazine recently. It's a big competitor in the men's market. 200 images of men, four images of women, two were blurred and in the background. I wanted to basically create content that I wanted to read, but that's not why I do it now. The reason I do it now is because I've got this community. They're really passionate um, and they're actively thanking us for what we're doing and fueling what we're doing. And we're, going, we're giving them content back and it's almost like a, a virtuous circle, and that's really fulfilling. And the other reason I do it is, as I started digging more and more into the uh, women's cycling market, there is a sexism that pervades women's cycling that you probably wouldn't believe. So uh, the winner of the Men's Tour de France, three-week cycling event, they get, I think, £500,000 prize money. The winner of the women's equivalent get 500 euros. So, you start unearthing stories like this, and because I was a hobbyist, I didn't realise the difference between um, what was happening at the elite cycling level. You find out things like that, and then you also look at uh, branding campaigns by um, one who I want to advertise with me, but what they, they did really wrong is they were um, putting out sexualised images of women in Lycra with their boobs out. And you're like, for God's sakes. And now the reason I do it is for the community and to have a platform to address all of these issues that I'm, I'm like, you wouldn't allow this necessarily in your boardroom. Mm -hmm. Why are you allowing it in cycling? And I think it's because we haven't got the vehicles to tell those stories. Okay. So there's a purpose there, yeah. Yeah, it gives you a bit of a fire in your belly when you're like, hang on, mm. stuff needs to change and no one's doing anything about it. Cool. Um, so Hero, obviously I know a little bit of the background of, of Muddy and I know that you started it as a blog, right? Kitchen table, you know, etc. So, yeah, I, I'm, what I'm interested in terms of the, the sort of the origin story is at what point and why you decided or thought this could be a business rather than just, you know? Well, I suppose, first of all, I should say that I kind of started it entirely selfishly. Um, having moved out of, I used to live in Islington uh, for years and years, moved out to Buckinghamshire to the kind of ruralness and um, to breed, basically. And, um, <laughs> and then kind of was just like, oh my God, where's the fun? And this is 14 years ago, so you can imagine things have kind of moved, they've changed quite, quite a lot. But I do remember, I was looking in all the local media, thinking, oh God, I'm so bored, I've got like two children, oh God, you know, what can I do? And um, I'd heard of something really cool that had happened like five miles down the road uh, two weeks ago. I would have gone to it, I was like, oh my, and it wasn't reported anywhere. And I just suddenly thought, that is it. Uh, if I'm going to find some fun out here, I'm going to have to find it myself. And I, as soon as I thought that, I then also thought, oh, that's a good idea. 
So I, from the very beginning, though, I mean, I was um, going into London, I think I was working for Marie Claire and various other people at the time and, and was just doing it as a sort of, actually just for joy. I, I mean, as soon as I started it, it was like um, a total addiction. I can't tell you. I was like, oh, what's the name? And I got, you know, I love kind of design. And I, so I got a design thing going and then it was, yeah, muddy stilettos and off I went and then it just couldn't stop. But yeah, so, you know, local media is, is, can be quite badly written. There's been no investment in it. You know, it's kind of um, advertorial. It's PR puff. There's no curation. There's no kind of, oh my God, I've got, you know, that one time if you've got, if you're really busy and you're working or maybe you've got children or whatever and you think, right, I'm going to go out with my husband tonight and I'm going to go somewhere special. I'm going to have a great night. And then you go to a place that you've read about in the local media and it turns out to be not at all what they said it was. And you're just like, for pity's sake. Um, so that's what we wanted to kind of... So if you go on Muddy and you go, we've gone to it ourselves. People trust our judgment. My picture is on the front. I'm telling you that I think it's okay. So people trust our judgment. We're out there saying, yeah, trust our judgment. And, and, and so, so what started as a kind of thing to help myself. I mean, I touch a little bit on what you're doing because it has become quite... I mean, I often joke, you know, I've got two friends who do, like, amazing jobs, like, you know, head of an international charity and someone else is doing something really altruistic and I'm, like, floating on the flotsam and jetsam of kind of boutique hotels and kind of getting <laughs> drunk, you know, and sort of all the rest of it. But actually, I do think we do something quite altruistic as well. I think that we... I'm really proud of the fact that we help people in the local communities to kind of... They do, because we talk one-to-one with our readers, there's that, that close, the stickiness of the blog. So we kind of, they trust our judgment. We, we create communities. We help them enjoy themselves. And, and obviously we kind of, um, you know, help the best indie businesses as well. And that is very much part of absolutely integral to Muddy because, you know, you guys know, if you live in London, it's all kind of, you know, the cool indie businesses, the little things down the side street that nobody knows. I find that incredibly exciting. And uh, to share that with people is actually... Super cool. So you've touched on a few things there that I would sort of put in the bucket of brand and building a brand, right? You know, you've spoken about the principles about, you, you know, you won't recommend it if you haven't sort of tried it and, you know, believe in it yet yourself. So um, I think brand is quite an interesting topic for startup businesses. You've got, um, so, so John Hegarty, the ad agency founder and founder in the H and BBH, um, is now an investor through his incubator, The Garage. He was quoted a couple of years ago saying that startups shouldn't focus on starting a business, they should instead focus on building the brand, right? Um, and you've touched on some of the sort of principles of, of brand building there. Um, Lev, I wonder if I could ask you, so you're the founder of a creative business, mm. right? Um, how have you gone about building your brand and, mm. and what have you learned on that sort of process or that journey? I think the thing that we all have in common is that, you know, we identified this gap and we all had a kind of quite personal connection to, to, the, to the businesses that we've ended up launching. But for me personally, in terms of launching Galdem, I wasn't thinking about this is going to become like a global media company. Mm. It's going to be this, that and the other. I think those are things that emerged like when the community emerged. Um, so definitely that that kind of um, aspect of building the brand was quite an organic one. Right. Um, and I think it was people's love for what we had started to do when we were very early stages to be honest like within three months we'd had a lot of great coverage and people were really excited even though we hadn't published a huge amount of content I think what we had published was was really good um but the audience came to us and then it got to a kind of tipping point where things were growing and things were evolving and things were developing and it was very clear that this had you know legs this could become 
an, an enterprise. And I think there were certain key moments that 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 really kind of um, catapulted that, that really made that quite clear. Um, and I think a big part of that kind of natural growth of brand came in the events. So in, I think it was two, one or two years in um, to, to Gowden first starting, we partnered with the VNA and we did a takeover mm. where we um, kind of curated this amazing program of um, women of color across different disciplines, be that in the club, the club scene, be that in like LGBTQ curation, be that in like art, be that in like MCs, whatever it was. And we filled the space. And I don't, and I think at that point we knew that, you know, what we had was special and we'd all kind of been brought together through this and, and, and things were, things were evolving. Um, but I don't think we knew at that point necessarily that the audience that turned up would turn up. And on the night, there were queues down the road of the VNA, and 5,000 people had come and, and it was kind of like a one in one out situation. And I think physically seeing our audience, our community, like in a real world context outside yeah. of the online space was a real indication that my God, people really want this thing to exist. And it was yeah. kind of written about as this historic moment for people of color in these kind of institutions with complicated histories and, and to be able to highlight that and also take up space in such a visible way. I think for us, that was, that was a clear moment that, okay, the brand is here, it's built. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's established and, and, um, and all organically without any kind of infrastructure or budget or marketing spend or anything like that. It just, it, it came because what we were doing was important and, and well put together. So I think that is how it then evolved. And I think shortly after that, after graduating a year after kind of having spent some time working in different media environments, that okay, yeah, like this is possible. We yeah. can do this on on a on a on a big scale and on a scale that hasn't been done before. You've got your kind of slightly more old school publications yeah. um, who have kind of spoken to that audience, but there's nothing that exists in in this space right mm -hmm. now. And so it was just perfect timing. Well, yeah, the, 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 I'm hearing definitely uh, you know elements of serendipity there, but but also the, you, you, when you're talking about it happening organically or mm. there being sort of moments that have sort of marked um, progress. I, I, you know, I, I wonder, is there anything that with hindsight, there was a moment where you thought, right, we're not going to do that again. Was there anything that, that was a sort of negative learning experience or is it all I the think, upside? Uh, I'm, no, I mean, I think, you know, everything comes with challenges and, and, and learnings. Um, I think, you know, Gowden started in a very kind of organic way and the structure has changed. And so there are things that you have to overcome in that sense. There are also things in terms of pricing and like knowing the value of what it is that you're providing. And yeah. in the early days, there are things that you would do that you wouldn't necessarily do four years on when you understand how things should be costed yeah. or with that lovely takeover, we would have been hitting their like diversity targets probably for the next like 20 years now, I don't know. But like, but, but, for, but for a long time, right? But I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely in terms of knowing the value of, of what it is that you're providing and the value of your, that audience and community and connection that you have, um, whilst cherishing that, respecting that and wanting to do right by them. I think that's something that you learn over time for sure. I think we're really interested in hearing from you as people who are in the thick of this and doing this is just a little bit more about how you've grown that audience, you know, um, particularly what's driven the growth, whether it's moments in time or, or, or decisions you've taken live, you know, and, and what the sort of the, the milestones in growing that audience has, has been. Danielle, do you want to lead on this? Um, I think 
There are a couple of milestones for Casket, and the first was our launch. So mm -hmm. in quite an unusual departure, we actually launched with a print product, a magazine. And most people wouldn't bother doing that because it's so, so, so expensive. But the reason we did that is because we wanted to stand out against the competitors and we wanted to get physically in the hands of our audience. So uh, we, we did a print product. We uh, partnered with a distribution company who then put our magazines in coffee shops and 350 bike shops and coffee shops around the country. It started to go out. I was like, oh my God, it's like I had a baby. Um, I was like, are people going to like this? Are they even going to notice? Are they going to use it as cat litter? Um, but people's, we started getting this social media, so we had digital channels created, but not, they, they weren't really very well populated, just with the basics of who Casket were. Mm. Um, but as people started finding the magazine, they were like, oh my God, it's so refreshing. It's what women's cycling has been waiting for. The uh, cycling PRs was being really positive. And I think that um, kind of unusual way of launching um, actually created like quite a buzz in the industry. And mm. that was our first kind of audience milestone spike. And then I think most recently we have done a partnership with London Bike Show and we put a stage, a casket stage at London Bike Show. And I think having clever partnerships and by partnering with us, it meant they could have our audience similar way. Yeah. Um, and I didn't quite understand the value of it because by partnering with us, we upped the number of female attendants by 80% which is amazing. Um, but conversely, by par partnering with them, um, we got on their email database. They were f advertising us with paid media when we couldn't necessarily afford to do that. So I think those clever partnerships have helped with our audience development as well. Okay. I think those partnerships, like strategic partnerships, is such an important part of growth and like expanding the message mm -hmm. and, the, and the reach. And we did something similar with The Guardian Weekend in um, 2018, where we took over the weekend magazine and that was a really amazing opportunity for us to tell the stories that we're usually telling on like on a guardian kind of uh, level readership platform resource etc and outsold you know the the what is the benchmark for for august um at that time and also had amazing traction on social media everyone course, was really yeah loving it and all of these young women of colour were running out to their like local shops trying to buy The Guardian which never that doesn't happen really so they're not really going out to buy papers right yeah. um, and, and tweeting like oh my god they're sold out here we can't find them in Hackney da, da, da. Um, and I think that was like another uh, aside from the kind of like core events and, and, and also print print is a big one for us and we do it kind of for sim similar reasons to physically get in the hands of people. I think that's a really good example of yeah. um, a strategic partnership that was beneficial for us and also beneficial for them in terms of learning and access to a new audience and talent um, and us for access to the platform and ability to tell the stories that we want to tell but on a bigger scale and can i ask i mean did did you pitch the guardian that did, did, um, did they yeah ask you what how did it come about we we've we've got like a good relationship with yeah, the guardian sure. so so um lots of our editorial team have been through in various points of their career and our head of editorial had a really great relationship with um ruth and melissa who head up the guardian weekend so we had a meeting with them um, where we were just talking about ways that we could partner and we were like, oh, should we do this kind of like list type thing? And we were like, nah, everyone does these lists of like how many influential women or whatever to to, li to listen to. Boring, let's think of something else. Um, and so Charlie kind of jokingly said, why don't we just take it over? And they were like, oh, that's interesting. And then kind of ensued the process of pitching and and, right. and 
taking apart every element and because it was literally every element was taken over was replaced by like a woman or non-binary person of color so that's from like the crossword set to your like makeup artist to literally every component part every illustration every little d- detail that you could think of um but they wanted to work with us and we wanted to work with them and mm. so it was a case of just ironing out exactly what that could look I like. I remember when that came out, it was amazing. It looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. Were you really Nicole proud of it? Yeah, I cried a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the quality of those partnerships as well. It's kind of like really matching yourself up mm. with the right, you know, I think that's that's all part of the integrity as mm. well, isn't it? Yeah. Of, mm. of what you're doing and kind of, you know, if you match up with the right people, the right, you know, the right advertisers, you know, we won't take on anybody, you know, won't work with anybody that we don't feel that we could write about, you know, anyway. Um, and I think by doing that, it never it never jolts with the reader. If, you know, if the Guardian, they'll be thinking, you know, it's um, it's it's a perfect kind of combination. So I can get totally get that. And what about things like you know adding channels to to grow the audience? I mean, obviously, if, if you add a county from Muddy Stilettos, then you're growing the audience, right? Um, yeah. In terms of the actual, you know, the 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 literal channels that you use to, you know, it has. Adding any particular channel had a significant impact on audience oh, growth. We've well for us, it's um, so we we've been totally organic as well. So we don't we have I mean almost zero marketing spend. I mean, kind of ridiculous really. Um, but for us, a new channel. Well, our biggest sort of growth channel has been doing our awards. So the muddy award. We um, and again, actually, that came from a really sort of good a good spot because it started just in Bucks and Oxen for us. And I was thinking, you know, I love indie businesses. There's lots of, there were very few opportunities it felt to me outside London for anything that wasn't a pub or perhaps a hotel to kind of get some oxygen of publicity, you know, for like a really cool, like local beauty salon or, you know, a kind of really nice deli, you know, this is sort of nine, eight, nine years ago. So we, I started the awards really for that to kind of give, give the local businesses oxygen and obviously by, um, you know, by entering the awards, they'd also kind of come across Muddy Stilettos. And so there's a kind of lovely sort of synergy between indie businesses wanting to win our awards, quality of the sites, people going to the site because they want to vote for them, liking the site. And so it sort of grew really, you know, grew very organically. And, um, and that's kind of, we do that individually in counties right the way across the country. Actually, for the first time this year, I'm thinking, I'm thinking I might do, so we, so you have the best pub in Wiltshire, the best pub in, um, you know, um, Cornwall. This year, I'm thinking we might kind of loop them all together and have the best muddy pub. You know, it's kind of, so that kind of might grow to a different level. But a Muddy pub crawl. Muddy, oh my God. <laughs> it's not just about alcohol. Can I just put that out there? <laughs> we do like walks, you know, like country walks. <laughs> to the pub, yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. That's, that's, all, that's really interesting stuff. I'm... I'm, I'm Assuming that you're all over your TikTok strategy, right? And um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, any, any, going to be, anybody got any plans to do a goop and pitch Netflix for a TV show? Is there a muddy TV show there? No, maybe not. Okay, right. <laughs> so um, uh, the next area I want to talk about is the um, what the investment community referred to as recurring revenues, right? So um, you know where the money is coming from and where it's going to keep coming from. Um, basically. Um, so an obvious place to start is advertising revenues. Um, and Liv, you've already uh, sort of touched on that uh, a little bit. I wonder, um, I wonder what you can tell us about how Galdem has grown, you know, the, the advertising revenues mm-hmm. um, and maybe what advice you would give to other 
next gen or up and coming media brands? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of like our driving revenue stream is through um, brand partnerships. And that looks like a multitude of different things. It's not kind of just like display advertising. It yeah. is events, it is um, product, it is um, social media first campaigns, it's documentary series, mm -hmm. it's all sorts of things. Um, the next thing that we're launching in, I hope this doesn't come out before this launches, but on the 10th of Feb is our membership model. So that's kind of um, a multi-tiered um, membership buy-in. Um, it's not a paywall, but it is going to offer our audience access to events, to merch, to content, to, right. to things that, to, th to bits of merch and discounts from the partners that we work with. Um, and also kind of members only newsletter opportunities, alerts to jobs, that kind of thing, um, which are all things that we know that our audience absolutely want and from Galdem. Um, a lot of our audience are really, really creative and kind of want a lot of upskilling and love the event side of things. So that's, that. we're hoping that that, obviously we're hoping that that goes really well for us and becomes a kind of core um, revenue driver going forward. But definitely the, the brand partnerships, the consultation, all of that kind of stuff is the, is the core um, revenue stream for us, which, you know, is... As has worked so far, like touch wood, it's gonna, yeah. it's gonna it's gonna keep going well. But of course, there are difficulties in terms of timelines and making sure that those things are constant. So you do constantly have to think about other revenue streams that you can have that like carry on alongside your your kind of ad, core advertising um, stuff. But I think our team is our team is just beginning to expand. Our yeah. commercial team is still quite small, but you know there's an increased demand for work. So. We've just been recruiting for some more people to join us on. Well, this. I'm I'm really interested. Yeah, I mean, in the point that you've you've mm -mm. just made there around always having to think about and look for what the next, mm -mm. you know, mm -mm. and and video I'm, as well. Sorry, yeah. and like we just did a partnership with Channel Four, and we're looking to grow that element of right. things and also podcasting as well. I'm I'm super interested in the membership model, mm. um, uh, and I guess what I'm really interested in is what kind of you know, stress testing, evaluation, kind of how you arrived at this and the structuring of mm -hmm. it, particularly given what you said earlier about knowing the value yeah, that yeah. you bring to something. How do you put a value on, on that? Yeah, lots of research, lots, lots right. of research on kind of um, membership models that currently exist. Research in platforms, I guess, that not are speaking to the same audience, but maybe on a similar scale and, and growth. There's like an incredible publication called Salty, um, and we've had lots of kind of Skypes overseas around how their membership model has been going that they've just they've just launched in the last couple of months. We also did surveys with our audience. Right. We also held some focus groups with our audience as well. Um, would love to hold more focus groups, but we took a lot of research from a lot of different places. Um, and also we're working with um, a platform called Steady HQ that works with um, kind of independent publishers who are launching membership models. So they help us as well a lot in terms of kind of estimations and learnings that they've had from other kind of feminist type publications that they've had who have worked with them. I think most of the, the partners that they've worked with so far are ones who strategically don't want to work with advertisers mm -hmm. at all and where, you know, um, that's not the approach that we've taken. Mm. But a lot of research and a lot of planning over the last year in terms of how best to launch it, thinking about how we get it into the hands of the right people. But yeah, we have to basically do it and then yeah. reevaluate how it's going. Well, we wish you luck with that. And don't Thank worry, you. we won't... Uh, we Please won't have buy this memberships. Out, we won't have guys. this out before okay. the 10th of Feb. So, yeah. <laughs>
Um, let me see. Ah, right. So Hero, right? So I did the research for this. I dug out an interview that you did with Forbes uh, several years ago, right? Oh so don't yeah, worry. Yeah. I'm not going. I'm not going to test you on it. But there's, there's there's something in it that you've said as your advice <laughs> to people starting uh, a business. I'll I'll send it to you afterwards so you can <laughs> yeah. remind yourself. Um, one of the things you said about advice to somebody else doing the same thing was support your advertisers, right? So is there anything particular that Muddy does that, that nails that, 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 that sort of um, uh, looks after the advertisers to keep the money coming in? Uh, well, yes, I think I, I do. So what you said, yes, I suppose there is, but I think it comes from, it's not just supporting them for supporting sake. I think, if, I think it comes a step back from that if you choose the right advertisers. So just to explain as well, so our model is... You know, we have all these different counties, 24 counties. Each of those counties uh, has local advertising, so local kind of, you know, brand partnerships and, and banner advertising, etc. And so we're very careful about all of those people that we work with um, on that kind of really micro level. And I think, and then obviously when you put them all together, we then work with national, you know, big national advertisers as well. And I think the same thing applies to both, really, which is you look after your advertisers by making sure, yes, of course, you know, you kind of, you make sure that they're out on the site, that you put them in newsletters, that they're kind of social, but you do it in a, in a way that is really authentic to your reader. And I think as long, if you do that, you are looking after your advertisers. You know, the worst thing in the world would be, you know, if I, I mean, I won't sort of name particular brands, but, you know, there, there's certain brands that you just think, well, you know, let's say, for example, like a betting brand, we get... You get asked all the time, female betting brands, you know, come on, do something. Absolutely not. You know, I don't agree with it. I don't want to do it. It's not right for our readership. I could probably earn a lot of money on it. You've got absolutely no chance of, of being on Muddy Stilettos. Uh, actually, Danielle, yeah, you mentioned the bike show uh, earlier on. Um, and I know that also Casket has explored uh, merchandise products, branded products yeah. um, as a revenue driver as well. Can, what can you tell us about that? I think, um, I keep talking about how valuable my community is. Mm. And I think probably uh, our biggest revenue driver is actually D to C, so direct to our community. So we, um, as a bit of a punt really, on the very first magazine issue, we created some caps Cyclists love caps. With um, Casquette is cap, right? Exactly, in, in France. Um, so, and the cap had JFDI on it, and we just created it for the cover shoot. And JFDI it means just fucking do it, which is kind of us. It's women's... spelling that out. Just, sorry. <laughs> you can bleep that out, in case anyone wasn't sure. Um, yes, and so we, we did it as a creative thing effectively mm. and then we had so many people asking us where can I get the cap where can I get the cap um, that we started a series of caps in terms of merchandise we started JFDI jerseys and um, I'm really confident that whenever we create something um, merchandise wise or even in publishing it's our community who are revenue drivers for us yeah um, I think secondarily to that is the event space so we've experimented with London Bike Show but I think if we do uh, casket branded events, it's the community just as much as the brands who are supporting us. And in fact, um, the brands are still a little bit, oh, it's women's cycling. I'd say they'll support the men's, they'll give us kit, but they won't necessarily um, front up uh, cash. So it's the community and the merchandise we're creating for them that is a primary revenue driver. And I believe in our community mm. first and foremost, and that's who I'm looking out for. The brands will come but um, it's community. 
I love your description of D2C as direct to community because, um, of course, you know, you know, it's often used to describe direct to consumer. Um, but community adds a, a, a different dimension uh, to that. And obviously, if, if you talk to DTC brands, they will say that every transaction is an opportunity to learn something about the customer. And that's really what fuels their kind of growth. Um, you know, and there's obviously parallels between DTCs and NGMs or next generation media brands. But thank you for sharing that. Um, so uh, we're on the home straight. Um, uh, I wanted to talk specifically about growth and about funding for growth. I know you're, you're all at different sort of stages um, on that, uh, that journey, but it'd be useful just to hear as startup media businesses, uh, you know, in a sector where, you know, the investment community obviously uh, is, or the, the, the evidence show that they're, you know, the, the money tends to flow towards, you know, tech businesses, uh, perhaps. So I'm really interested in your experience about raising uh, investment. Um, maybe it'd be useful just to sort of define where you each are in that journey and what the experience and, and learnings have been so far. Liv, can you kick us yeah, off? Yeah, we raised that? a little bit of money at the end of last year. Uh, Zena, who's in the audience, was very helpful in that, in, that, um, in kind of helping us shape our, our deck and, and, and understand the kind of investment process a bit more, as was Mark. Um, it was a new world for me. It was the mm -hmm. first time um, being in those kind of spaces and conversations and navigating that. I think it went um, better than I had anticipated. I think I'd spoken to friends who had, who, had, um, who had gone through a similar process and it had sounded... It was, it was difficult and it is emotionally draining, of course, raising money, but it had sounded like the worst thing in the world, right. which like, thank goodness um, it wasn't. Um, we got like our invest, initial bit of investment from a few different sources, some angels, Backstage Capital, which is like um, headed up by Arlen. Um, we had some of our heroes, one of my personal heroes invested a bit of money on a personal level, Roxanne Gay, who's an icon, literary icon. Um, so people, people were, um, people were, Interested, excited. I think, you know, something that was good is that we already had like this community that existed. We'd already built the brand. We'd spent a lot of time building the brand. Yeah, yeah. We were raising money to, to launch something completely new. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we were just kind of raising a, 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 a quite a small sum of money. We'll see, you know, when we go into bigger numbers, what that what those conversations look like. Mm. But for the most part, it was a good, solid learning experience. And I think like one of the things that I did learn was that just because people do want to give you money, they're not necessarily the right people to invest in your organisation. There was a couple of people you can tell, kind of, yeah, just were, were not the right the right people for the for the organisation, and the reasons that they wanted to invest weren't mm. the right reasons. You know, God believe in it as a as a solid business. There were four of them, and I know all of them by face and by you know. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm really happy with the way that we do it. We kind of thought about whether we do it in a more of a community crowdfunding type thing, but I'm really happy with who we have and and how we went about it. And it was really for me about it wasn't about raising like a shit ton of money that we we then can't make back and um, unnecessary like unnecessarily so it was about getting the right amount in the bank so that I know that we have a degree of security and that we can then focus on driving revenue ourselves and I think that's that's been really good you know we're kind of we're we're making what it is that we're spending um, which is the way that I want to do it and we've seen what happens when things happen the other way, um, things crash. And 
your staff don't have jobs and there are redundancies all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really happy with the way that we're kind of we've we've decided to grow and I'm really excited for the next stages of growth which will be kind of more expanding into other markets. We've got a big proportion of our readership that are based in the States, about 25%. So the next kind of bit of money that we'll be raising will be thinking about some serious expansion. So it'll like it's likely to be a lot more than than what than what we raised previously. And like you say, you've got a very strong proof of concept mm, to, mm, to build mm. that on yeah. and, and, and and you've got the, the track record so far. Mm. Um, Danielle, people who like riding bikes really like riding bikes, right? So it must it's be a quite, slippery slope. I mean, well, you know, it depends which way you're going up or downhill. <laughs> but um, presumably that helped with, with your race in terms of having a, a defined group of people that you know, are fanatical about the sport? I think it was both uh, people who are fanatical about cycling, but also people who buy into the purpose. Yes. We've got a lot of female investors who want to support, uh, you know, mm. it's a female-led, community-driven um, concept. And we're trying to do more than just get people cycling. We're trying to, as I said, redress the balance. Um, and I think, you know, if you, it isn't even a sell. It's like, this is legit why I launched. And so mm. I think people buy into that. We're at the point where uh, we are still raise in the raise. I don't know how much we've got. Uh, we're at the point where it's coming in and I've already spent it in my head because I've got, <laughs> you, you know, you have so many ambitions about what you want to do, how you want to expand, how you want to improve the product. Great. And here, so as I understand it, you've not yet sought outside um, sort of no. investment in this way. Have you, is there anything to add? To- oh, for sure. We, we, we're totally at the point where we're going for investment. So we've bootstrapped it the whole way. So we've mm. got, as I say, we haven't done any marketing. We've, we've been organic as well. We're just you know, fulfilling a need. Mm. So we've kind of got to 225,000 subscribers, which is massive, without doing anything. And so, but we're at a stage now where we, we're, so we're in 24 counties. I've got another sort of 12 or 13 that I want to be doing and want to do them quickly. Um, and then, you know, diversify. I mean, we, you know, um, yes, we're doing, we're doing events as well. Um, podcasting, we want to start to get into very quickly. Um, merch as well, sort of white labelling, doing our own stuff. I love all that kind of stuff. I've got so many ideas for that. Um, so we, but we definitely um, are now, we're in the very last stages of doing our investment deck. So we're kind of probably about a week or two away. And we've had some sort of preliminary conversations just with sort of various, I mean, I have a mentor who kind of has lots of contacts and, um, just preliminary conversations have been really positive, I think, because people do recognise, you know, that we, so Muddy Sletters, we, we're talking to a group of people that are not talked to, you know, like you're talking, like you guys both as well. Um, you know, nobody else is talking to these women who are like outside London, but do not want to wear tweed underwear. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't want to wear Alice bands and they haven't got hounds. They want to kind of go out and have fun. <laughs> and so I think people recognise that, you know, and of course there's this exodus from London, you know, it's sort of 10 years ago, I think it was 40, the average age was 47. Now it's 37 leaving London. Lots of young people can't go into London. You know, technology means that people can work from home. So you've got this amazing groundswell of kind of creative call you know people who who want and also obviously you know media we sort of all know what we want to have happen around where we live and um so it's this kind of perfect storm i think and um i'm very hopeful that that would i'd get some decent money and I, like it. you i know exactly how i want to spend it <laughs> so that's, that's really useful <laughs> brilliant great stuff well look, i think we're going to um open up the the microphone is that a phrase I don't know Peter's going to wander around with a mic and if anyone has a question please ask 
Hi, I'm Charlotte Ricker. I'm a journalist. And this is mainly to hero, but actually to all of you. I, I get the feeling I might be totally wrong that, that maybe you're calling in favours with your content. Is that true? Or have you got paid staff? I mean, here, with, and you, have you got, you know, is, is there oh, a proper yeah, yeah, no, no. An editorial team? Yeah, so, uh, no, they're all they're paid. Well, actually, no, that, um, both, actually, but mainly paid. So everyone, so, the, so editors, you know, are paid and they create the content for their site. Um, we also, I've got an associate editor as well, Kerry Potter. So she's, she used to be featured director at Elle and she's really well known. She writes for all the big, um, you know, big publications. She works for Maddie as well. So we do a lot of the national stuff between us. Um, it's not sort of farmed out. I don't, I feel uncomfortable farming stuff out to other people because it's my picture up there telling people that I think something. So um, no, it's not farmed out. Well, one thing we'll do sometimes with reviews is we'll give them to well-known authors um, or like people that we, you know, who we, we know are good writers. They're friends of Maddie, like Clover Stroud, who's a you know, fantastic author, happens to live in Oxfordshire. I know her really well and I trust her taste. So we do it like that. So it's, it's absolutely not sort of farmed out because that's, really that's the biggest overhead often, isn't it? Staff is the most expensive thing. I'm just curious to know how you were yeah, managing it's, to pay for that. Well, because they kind of obviously every... You know, we are a commercial site, so every every county should be earning its money, and therefore it can it can afford good staff. And at, that's, as I've said before, is massive for me. You know, the quality of the editor, that then you know, good national journalists, they know how to make something interesting for the reader. They can kind of cut through the PR guff that you get given on all sides and create something that is actually genuinely useful, but also witty and entertaining. So on Muddy, we say you know, Time Out can do useful. And, you know, whoever might do entertaining, but not many people can put them together. And that's what we do. Yeah, for us, we kind of, we started off not, not having any resource. So in that sense, there was no money to begin with. But absolutely, as soon as we had the resource and infrastructure, we, everyone was paid. We've got um, 11 people that work in the office and then we've just hired two more people. And um, obviously loads and loads of freelance writers as well who are all paid. <laughs> Um, I'm going to be honest, and everyone is paid, but I don't think they're paid. So I have amazing writers from Guardian, a friend of mine, she's into cycling, she works at CityWire. So they're not being paid what they would be by Guardian or CityWire. I pay them, but I can't pay them as much as I as probably I think they're worth. Um, but uh, they do it because they love the product. I'm um, sorry, Carolyn Morgan. Um, this is probably more an observation than a question, but I think what's, what I heard from what you're all saying is the importance of having a very strong purpose. And I think, you know, you all said there are some people who will take as advertisers and some we won't. There are some people we'll partner with and some we won't. There are some investors that we will take their money and some not. And I think that is really quite, seems quite crucial to sort of having a very clear set of values. And that probably also then helps with the authenticity with your kind of community. But that, that in, a, in a way, that's also what makes you different. Yeah. I think uh, the women's cycling community in particular, they can smell bullshit. So you, mm. you, you can't put a foot wrong. I wouldn't anyway, mm. but I don't want to do a disservice to them, which is why um, anybody we partner with, I, I abs absolutely believe in them um, because, you know, they'll hold us up and kind of challenge us, my community will, if we get it wrong. Yeah. Um, it's the same yeah. for us. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's it, you have your set of values, you know. Yeah. We've yeah. got a thing called, we call it the muddy mantra, which is kind of like, you know, we sort of say what we, what we do, how we, you know, how we work. And um, I've got a policy actually, because we work in small communities with small businesses, everybody has an off day. 
Um, we're not going to be. I never understand why you read in newspapers that something's really rubbish. Like if you've got kind of, you know, a thousand words, why don't you say something that's really good? And so we kind of, we won't, um, we're honest for sure, but we, if something's not good enough to be on Muddy, I'll just privately tell them, I'll say, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't write about your business. And I'll write about something that's positive because people want to know the good stuff to do. They don't want to read you know, something negative. So we kind of, that, that kind of filters right the way through on Muddy. So we're really positive, upbeat, but authentic and honest. You know, I wrote about something, you know, a spa today. Was, there's some really good things about the spa, but it's kind of like, you know, it's not, there are some things that, it's, there are other spas in the area that do certain things better. You've got to say that, otherwise people are going to go to that spa and feel really peed off. So, but at the same time, you can kind of find the best, you know, you think, oh, you know, it's not for, it's not for that person, but actually that person it would probably be really good for. So I think, yeah, as a core, absolutely, authenticity, trust, honesty, but also positivity. You know, there's enough shit going on in the world, isn't there? Let's find the fun. <laughs> we have like um, a set of ethical guidelines as well when we, for when we work with um, advertisers and also guidelines in terms of if we're doing display, like what that has to look like as well for, for Galdem in terms of representation and visibility. And we... We'll be looking at the infrastructure of organisations. We'll be looking at like the relationship that we've had with them, whether we think that this is like, you know, something that's genuine that our audience are going to respond to. Again, we are predominantly like in a kind of opinion based platform. So, yeah, our audience are really engaged and will actively tell us in the comments what they think. So, yeah. Hi, Edie Lush. I appreciate that during a fundraise, you don't want to say anything negative at all. <laughs> But in the spirit of sisterhood, is there anything that you did that you would just never, ever do again? Uh, is there any mistake you made or any cautionary tale that you'd give for folks who are building a next-gen media company? What, in the investment process? No, just in, just in terms of if there's an event that you did, you were like, whoa, I will never do that again. Or is there a, a partnership that you made? Or is there any time that you thought... Well, certainly learn from that. Not going to do that one again. I've had like a partnership that was like that, which was absolutely horrific and traumatic and would never work with them again um, because they were very dishonest in their intentions and approach. And I didn't have like the kind of full up infrastructure of a team at that point. So I was kind of working. I was in the BBC. I was working all over the place and also trying to manage this client relationship. And Funnily enough, there are other people that I know, other organisations that I know, like actively won't work with them because of, of how they went about things. That was horrific. And there were lots of things that I learned in terms of boundaries and clearly setting things up. Were they up an advertiser? Or? Legal support. A brand. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was awful. Investment-wise, I can't really think of anything. I do remember that on one of my first pitches, I was like really late and really flustered. And that was horrific. It was still fine. Um, but you know when you have one of those days where like nothing in the journey kind of kind of pans out and you have to just be able to keep it cool like, everything was okay in the end but just um, not letting stress get the better of you I think that's mm. something that I've learned throughout the process um, and also do you know what I think like with the work that I do and I think you know the work that all of us do it for me it's it's quite tied to my identity and therefore things can feel incredibly personal and I think there needs to, to be a degree of being able to separate the fact that like you are not your job in a sense. Yeah. You have to be able to take a step back and like look at things with a sense of perspective. And that's something I'm still working on, but something that has definitely gotten easier over the four years. And something I wish maybe I had known like starting out, but it's not about you necessarily. Mm. This is the business. You are not the business in that kind of sense. Mm, I think probably my 
big piece of advice is when you're doing something like this and it's a, it's a startup and it's very organic and you have to put your whole self into it, it's making sure that you leave enough room for it to, because it they all start as passion projects mm. that go wrong in a right way. <laughs> it's about uh, ha make sure you leave enough space for the passion because um, I think I, I hit it and I was working so hard that I lost a bit of the passion for about six months and I was like, I'm, I don't even know why I'm doing it. And, you know, I, I've turned it back around again because of community and all the things I said earlier, but make sure you give yourself a break and um, leave some space to make it still fun. I think that's Breaks. such good advice and it's so hard. Mm. I'm kind of in that zone actually at the moment where you, you know, there's so many different hats and I think when you're kind of, you know, you're going for investment and you're, you're looking and, you know, you're, you're growing quickly and, you know, doing a lot of, I do a lot of HR, you know, because obviously we're putting on editors and all the time and it's just there's a lot of that stuff and actually what I love doing most is creating ideas and, you know, edit, you know writing cool stuff and going out and meeting people and that, that's it's really good advice. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going to pop out the other end. But I mean, I haven't had any terrible experiences, thankfully. I think, if I don't know, I don't know why, maybe just a bit of luck. Um, maybe also, I think on a, on a regional level, because we are, because we are about kind of finding the really good stuff, we only have really lovely feedback. Well, that's amazing. Thank you very much for a great panel. Thank you, Kevin, for facilitating. Liv, Danielle and Hero. A little round of applause, please. You've been listening to the Vida Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, check out the show notes for more information. Please like, share and subscribe on your favourite podcast app and follow Vida Media on all the usual platforms for regular updates on startup media and content-powered brands. Thanks for listening. See you next time.